Welcome back aboard the Maritime History Podcast, everyone, and thanks for joining us once again. Today, we will go ahead and tackle episode 32, which I've been calling The Letdown at Lade. Really, no need to drag out the intro today, so I'll briefly recap last episode, and then we can get right back to the action. Last time, we discussed how Miletus and her tyrant Aristagoras asked for Persia's help to invade the island of Naxos. While the invasion didn't quite pan out, we saw how Persia had funded a rapid buildup of naval forces in the eastern Mediterranean, especially in Phoenicia, the coastal Ionian cities, and probably even at some islands like Cyprus. For reasons that we outlined last time, after the failed invasion, Aristagoras chose to reverse course and to incite an Ionian revolt against Persia's domination. Some sneaky business allowed Miletus to seize an unknown quantity of ships right from underneath the nose of the Persians and the Persia-sympathizing Ionian tyrants. So, in 499 BCE, we left the scene with Aristagoras departing the harbor of Miletus, bound for Sparta, where he planned to recruit their assistance in the stand against Persia. All in all, at this point in the story, the chances for the Ionian League, as some historians have called them, their chances didn't look non-existent, at least. Yes, Persia had the largest military in the world, probably, not to mention that Persia controlled all of the territory around the Ionian cities, so in reality, the only hope for the rebels was to control the sea. By seizing the ships that they did, the sea power part of the plan had come off swimmingly, and with some type of democracy in place in most of the Ionian Greek cities by this point, also, while Persia was assessing the situation and deciding how to respond, Aristagoras had a chance to go on a recruiting trip. Herodotus is again the main source of the events that we will be discussing today, and in his words, Aristagoras himself sailed in a trireme to Lacedaemon, for what he needed to find now was a powerful ally. The easy part was finding the best candidate for the position of powerful ally. It's not like Aristagoras had to take out a few lines in the classified ads or put up an ad on Craigslist. He knew exactly where to find the best potential ally. The problem was in convincing Sparta, and in particular her king, Cleomenes, that Sparta needed to even bother in becoming an ally to the Ionian revolutionaries. We really haven't gone much into the backstory of the political situation in Sparta at this time, and other podcasts are much better equipped to handle that discussion, so suffice it to say for us here that Cleomenes was a king who broke the mold of what many Spartans expected of their king. He wasn't afraid to bump heads with the other city-states on the Peloponnese, and in 510 BCE he'd even led an attack on Athens itself working on behalf of one aristocratic family who wanted to oust the tyrant Hippias. All the alliances and political shuffling does get complicated very quickly, so as I said, do seek out other Greek-focused podcasts to help sort all of the backstory out if you're concerned with it. For us, the bottom line is that Cleomenes had gained a bit of a reputation in Greece for being willing to flex the Spartan war machine's muscle more than had been the case in the past, generally. We talked a bit about Cleomenes on our most recent member episode, by the way. We discussed connections between wine and the sea in Greek history and mythology. Cleomenes popped in there because he was said to have been a reputed lover of barbarian fashions and style. He was even said to have developed a taste for drinking undiluted wine in the Scythian fashion, which some Spartans of that time said is the reason that he went insane. Nevertheless, before he went a bit off his rocker, Cleomenes seemed like a Spartan king who may have actually been willing to hear out Aristagoras. 
Aristagoras, too, must have thought his chances of success to be pretty decent. He did have a few convincing points jotted out on a napkin, points that he thought might sway Cleomenes to put Spartan power behind the Ionian cause. The first point was that the Persians wore trousers, turbans, and they fought with bows and short spears, wardrobe and weapon choices that apparently made them inferior to the Spartans. Sparta wasn't known for its humility, after all. Beyond Persia's apparent softness and lack of valor, the real point from Aristagoras was that Persia was wealthy beyond anything that Sparta could even imagine. And if the Persians were such pushovers, then Sparta could easily fill her coffers with Persian loot. Aristagoras then tried to seal the deal by reminding Cleomenes that the Ionians and the Spartans shared a common ancestry. So, all things considered, what did Sparta have to lose, really? At first blush, the points raised by Aristagoras were fairly influential. One could almost see Cleomenes thinking them over and gradually being swayed into seeing the merit that they held. But, and there's always a but in stories like this, but after making these points, Aristagoras then pulled out a map to show Cleomenes the lands of the Persian Empire. In the words of Herodotus, Aristagoras had with him a bronze tablet on which a map of the entire world was engraved, including all rivers and every sea. So Aristagoras pulled out this map that was on a bronze tablet, and he proceeded to show Cleomenes the sequence of lands from the coast of Ionia all the way east to the Persian royal capital of Susa, where, quote, the great king makes his home, and where his great stores of wealth are kept. As his final point to try and seal the deal once and for all, Aristagoras said, quote, Once you have taken this city, you can be confident that you will rival Zeus in wealth. And come on, who wouldn't want to be as wealthy as an Olympian god? Now, it would seem from a straight reading of Herodotus that after looking at the map and after hearing Aristagoras out, Cleomenes must not have grasped the significant distance from Sparta all the way to Susa. It doesn't appear that world maps, depictions of the world as the Greeks understood it anyways, it doesn't seem like these had quite come into popular usage yet at this point. I would like to mention here uh, that I've also started a series on the member feed of the podcast where we're taking a look at geography and cartography as somewhat more or less connected to maritime endeavors. So in our first episode there, we discussed cartography prior to and leading up to this time period in Greece. Suffice it to say, for right now, the discussion in this episode, this meeting between Aristagoras and Cleomenes is one of the earliest literary references to the use of a world map for a political or military purpose directly. It's also interesting to note that a historian from Miletus at the same time, a man named Hecateus, he was actually involved in the Ionian Revolt directly, but he also wrote a treatise on geography. It's a book that's called the Periodas Ges, or Circuit of the Earth. This treatise has been lost to time, unfortunately, but other Greek historians recorded that it contained a world map, which made it an important point in the progression of geography in ancient Greece. Hecateus, actually, was the lone dissenter when Aristagoras initially tried to instigate the revolt against Persia, as we talked about it last time. So it's interesting to see that the Greek geographer was the one who emphasized the need for the Ionians to take control of the sea if they ever hoped to stand a chance against Persia. An understanding and grasp of geography is key when it comes to military strategy. All right, after that aside there, 
Let me reiterate the point that Cleomenes must not have grasped the significant distance from Sparta all the way to Susa. We know this simply from the fact that he looked at the map on the bronze tablet, he listened to Aristagoras describe the intricacies of the territory between Ionia and Susa, but then at the end of this whole exchange, he finished up by asking, quote, how many days' journey would take to go from the Sea of the Ionians to the King of Persia? I'm picturing in my mind that uh, when this question was asked, Aristagoras probably tried to keep his poker face on. He thought that he'd been effectively misleading with his pitch up to this point, but in the face of a concrete question, I guess he could dissemble no longer. The real answer to the question of distance, at least in practical terms, is that it would take Sparta a journey of three months' march from the coast of Ionia all the way to the Persian capital city. This reply, beyond confirming for Cleomenes that the time investment would be greater than he was willing to make, the distance question completely sidesteps the reality that no confederation of Greek arms could reasonably have hoped to defeat the Persian Empire on her own turf, no matter what. So, for us in this discussion, it's enough to know merely that Sparta and her king were unwilling to venture so far from the Peloponnese at the behest of the Ionian Greeks, blood ties or none. Historians have debated whether or not the Greeks of the Peloponnese and Attica had a true appreciation for the Persian threat to Greek interests on the western side of the Aegean, but whether they appreciated the threat or not, it's clear that Sparta considered an investment in the Ionian revolt to be less important than a continued focus on her quarrels with her neighbors, including Athens. Now, there are some interesting points made in a journal article that I'll recommend as useful reading to supplement our discussion today, and the author there makes the case that Cleomenes himself pursued a consistent policy of trying to keep Persia out of Spartan-dominated Greece. His meddling in Athenian politics could be seen as an attempt to oust tyrants that were soft on Persia, but in the end he could never have hoped to lead the armies of the Peloponnese such a distance to face a foe who may or may not ever invade Greece in the future. These are the considerations that Cleomenes probably was mulling over in his mind while he looked at this map that Aristagoras had brought. Enough about Sparta here for now, though. And that article, by the way, that I just mentioned is titled The Failure of the Ionian Revolt, and it was written by Donald Latiner. I will link to it in the show notes, as I try to regularly do if you're looking uh, for where to find that most conveniently. Now, since Aristagoras was in the vicinity, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that his next stop after being rejected by Cleomenes was to sail over to Athens. Athens was perhaps more familiar with the threat that Persia had presented to Greece, since Athens had had a few run-ins with Persia before, just as Sparta had. Unfortunately for Athens, she had unwittingly both introduced herself and then subjected herself to Persia in 507 BCE, back when Cleomenes had injected Sparta into Athenian politics and threatened the invasion of Athens. The mere threat of a Spartan invasion had so bothered the Athenians that they sent emissaries to Sardis to the court of a guy named Artaphernes, a man that we might be familiar with after we talked about him last time. He was the Persian satrap in Sardis. And when the Athenians got to his court, they begged for Persian assistance in defending themselves against Sparta. Well, before Artaphernes deigned to even consider it, he demanded a sacrifice of earth and water from the Athenians. And supposedly being unfamiliar with Persian custom, they bumblingly obliged. Little did they know that in doing so, they'd symbolically paid obeisance to Persia. So essentially in Persian eyes, 
they had placed Athens under Persian rule. After some further events transpired and Athens refused to do Persia's bidding, King Darius viewed Athens as a rebel in almost the same sense that the Ionian cities were rebels, the only practical difference being the separation of the Aegean that provided Athens with some temporary buffer from the Persian military expansion. When Aristogoras arrived at Athens, fresh from his disappointment in Sparta, the fact that Athens had already clashed with Persia a little bit might have actually boosted his hopes for Athenian aid, such as it was. Another boost came in the fact that Athens had instituted a democracy. So while Cleomenes alone made a decision that bound Spartan interests, the answer of Athens to the Ionian request for aid would have to be brought before an assembly that represented the voice of the people to a remarkable degree. Aristagoras gave the Athenian assembly the same spiel that he'd laid out for the Spartans, with a particular emphasis on the claim that Miletus was originally an Athenian colony. This may have been true only in the Greek mythology rather than in actual fact, but it was no matter. Herodotus tells us that Aristagoras found it easier to, quote, deceive and impose upon a whole throng of people to believe his claims about Persian weakness than to do so to just one individual. I take this to be a not-so-veiled comment about the proclivity to war of a pure democracy, but whatever the intentions behind Herodotus' commentary here, he relates that Athens voted to, quote, dispatch 20 ships to help the Ionians, and they appointed Melanthion, a man of the city who was distinguished in every respect, as commander over them. Not one to shy away from the occasional dramatic flourish, Herodotus feels led to tell us that, quote, these ships turned out to be the beginning of evils for both Hellenes and barbarians. Although many, and maybe even all of us, know what Herodotus was alluding to with that little foreshadowing, in 498 BCE, 20 triremes departed the Athenian port of Phaleron, destined for the Ionian coast and a date with Persia. The historian Tom Holland referred to this 20-ship contingent from Athens as democracy's first-ever task force, and I couldn't help but chuckle to think of that concept, although I do suppose that it's accurate. Now, the number of ships that Athens contributed to the cause may seem paltry at first blush, but it's important to remember that most cities at this time didn't have large naval forces, especially in comparison to the numbers that we start to see later on in this war, after Themistocles takes over, for instance, or in later wars. At this point in Athenian history, 20 ships is probably about half of the entire naval force of the city. So with this in view, then their choice to send 20 ships to Ionia starts to look more like a substantial donation of manpower, made in an effort to truly help a city and region with a shared heritage. Before these 20 ships reached Ionia, they did also meet up with five more ships that had been pledged by Eretria, which was a port on the island of Euboea, and seeing how Euboea is a bit more vulnerable to attack from the east, it does make sense that they would have had an interest in trying to prevent Persia's aggression as well. Now, a fair bit of what occurs next in the broader context of the Ionian Revolt isn't related heavily to maritime issues, at least not beyond the fact that ships were used to get the rebel allies over to Ionia. The Athenian and Eretrian ships first made for Miletus, and after Aristogoras gathered the allies together and planned out next steps, from there, the Ionians and their allies launched an ambitious attack on the city of Sardis, the city from which the Persian satrap oversaw the administration of the region. 
The end result of this attack was that the Ionians ended up accidentally setting the city on fire, and as the fire raged out of control, most of the city was burned, including even a sanctuary to a local god. This understandably enraged the Persians, who pursued the fleeing Ionians back to Ephesus, where they laid a rather severe beatdown on the Ionians there. The survivors of this battle dispersed and fled back to their respective cities, while the Athenians packed everything back up onto their ships and withdrew to the west, removing their arms from the rebel cause altogether. Aristagoras, of course, begged them to reconsider, but they realized that they'd gone and affixed their name to this serious blunder of an offensive against Persia, and while they attempted to back out, it was too little, too late. Herodotus at this juncture gives us this potentially apocryphal few lines. They are, quote, When Darius first heard the report that Sardis had been burned by the Athenians and Ionians, he disregarded the Ionians, since he knew that they at least would not escape punishment for their revolt. But he inquired who the Athenians were, and after he'd been told, he asked for a bow. He took the bow, set an arrow on its string, and shot the arrow toward the heavens. And as it flew high into the air, he said, Zeus, let it be granted to me to punish the Athenians. After saying this, he appointed one of his attendants to relate to him three times whenever his dinner was served. My lord, remember the Athenians. If the line where Herodotus said that Athenian ships heading to Ionia was the beginning of evils, if we can see this line as a starting point of sorts, then the introduction of Athens into the mind of the Persian king is, without doubt, a major next step in the story. After the collapse of the Ionian allies at Ephesus, Athens withdrew entirely, as we established. Now, in that article that I referenced earlier, written by Donald Latiner, he proposes an interesting sub-point that's related to the Athenian withdrawal from the Ionian Revolt. Of course, they realized that Persia couldn't be beat on land. It was really in Athens' own self-interest to get out of Dodge before the sheriff well and truly arrived back in town. But Athens was a commercial empire, too, after all, and it does appear from archaeological records that the trading of Athenian goods had actually grown in Ionia during the period when Persia had uh, tightened control over Ionian cities, especially in the city of Miletus. So, Athens actually stood to gain financially from a weaker Ionia, so although she made the significant gesture of sending those ships and participating early on in the revolt, she did withdraw quickly to preserve her long-term interests, at least if you want to read the situation through somewhat cynical glasses. After realizing the futility of armed revolt against Persia, Latiner also notes that, quote, perhaps the Athenians advised the Ionians and themselves chose to fall back on a naval strategy, wooden walls as in 480. This makes a lot of sense as we fill in the remaining events of the Ionian Revolt, so as we now move on to do so, we will bid adieu to Athens for now as they sail back to the Phaleron, content to wait for confrontation with Persia on Athenian terms. In the aftermath of the Athenian withdrawal from events in Asia Minor, as well as the aftermath of the uh, defeat at Ephesus, the Ionian cities were left to fend for themselves once again. There are some clearly described events that are laid out by Herodotus at this juncture, and we'll cover them in general here, but it's worth noting that the chronology laid out by Herodotus is a bit unclear so some historians have tried to untangle the possible sequence of events. I'll not go so far as to delve into that tangled web, so basically, 
Here's what Herodotus says happened next. Ionia, of course, realized that Persia's military might was overwhelming, that new allies needed to be brought into the fold if they had any chance of withstanding the next wave from the east. The Ionian allies managed to secure control of several cities in and around the Hellespont, in addition to the region of Caria, a region in western Anatolia that hadn't initially joined the revolt, but then chose to do so after Sardis was burned. The final region that chose to join the revolt was the island of Cyprus, and it was here that a lot of the subsequent action occurred. Herodotus spends a fair bit of space describing the various individuals and kings of Cyprus who were involved in the revolt and how it got to that point for Cyprus to join in, but for our purposes, it's probably enough to say that a year or so probably passed before Persia managed to prepare and mobilize for the counteroffensive. Darius, as we saw, he took it as a given that Ionia would receive their just desserts and that Athens would be dealt with down the road. So since Cyprus, Caria, and those cities in the Hellespont were the newest defectors to the Ionian cause, it seems that in the campaigning season of 497 BCE that Darius dispatched a few different generals to go to these regions and quell the uprisings that had started there. Since Cyprus is an island, um, it makes sense that the notable naval engagements occurred in that area. The fighting in Caria and even into the Hellespont was done almost entirely by land. Persia dispatched an army to Cyprus, transporting it over in ships. That's really all Herodotus tells us about the ships there. The kings of Cyprus asked the Ionians to come and lend naval power in the fight against Persia, so while Cyprian armies faced off against Persian armies on the island, Ionian ships faced off against the Phoenician ships that had come to support the invasion of Cyprus. All Herodotus tells us about this engagement is the following. With their fleet, the Ionians proved themselves superior on this day and overcame the Phoenicians. And of the Ionians, the Samians especially distinguished themselves. Meanwhile, the armies on land had met and were fighting each other. The problem, as the Ionians eventually discovered, is that while they had been outclassing the Phoenicians at sea, their Cyprian allies had been themselves getting outclassed on the land. Basically, once the victorious Ionian ships learned that the land battle was a lost cause and that Persia had taken the island, they turned sail and headed back to Ionia. There, the Ionians and Carians continued to fare similarly in their other land battles, and over the engagements of 497 to 495 BCE, Persia effectively swept the Ionian revolt into the sea. Their resistance was futile, you might say. Now, before we move on with the story and get into the climactic naval battle at Lade, there are a few historiographic points worth making, I think. They loosely relate to the way that Herodotus describes the revolt's failure and the reaction of its main character in the histories, Aristagoras. Near the close of Book 5 of those histories, Herodotus says that after Persia had retaken Cyprus, Caria, and the Hellespont, after they'd begun to move in on the main Ionian cities, that, quote, Aristagoras revealed how weak-spirited he really was, for when he saw the disorder and upheaval in Ionia that he had stirred up, he now realized that it would be impossible for him to get the better of Darius, and he began to think instead about escape. This portrayal is obviously hinting pretty unabashedly at how Herodotus viewed Aristagoras, Weak-spirited isn't really a veiled descriptor at all. 
After these lines, he then says that Aristagoras did indeed flee Miletus for Thrace, where he and his army perished at the hands of the Thracians. The points that I want to drop in here briefly relate to the way in which Herodotus describes the Ionian Revolt in general, and Aristagoras specifically. If you haven't picked up on it much, that's quite alright. I may not have let it slip through too heavily. But most even-handed historians note how Herodotus tends to treat the Ionian Revolt as a hopeless venture. His tone toward the entire revolt is rather negative, and he seems to indicate that Sparta was smart for staying out of it, and that Athens was dumb for sticking its finger into the mouth of the beast that was Persia. Athens may well have been dumb to take such an obvious role in stirring up the Persian hornet's nest, but Herodotus may have been influenced by factions in mainland Greece who preferred isolationism over an active opposition to Persia. Herodotus seems to indicate that Persia wouldn't have bothered Athens if Athens hadn't gone into Persian territory and participated in burning Sardis, but the reality does seem more likely that Persia always had had expansionist aims. Perhaps Athenian meddling in Ionia sped up the clock a bit. We could give him that. But it seems like Herodotus is giving Athenian aid to the Ionian revolt a rather bad rap. Likewise, he seems to come off a bit harsh in his take on the Ionians, especially since we know that he was an Ionian himself. He was born in Halicarnassus. This fact, his Ionian heritage, is a very strong candidate for the answer to his treatment of the affair, though or at least a big chunk of understanding why he takes such a harsh line. You see, it's thought that his city had declined to join in the Ionian Revolt, and then when the eventual outcomes panned out the way that they did, the Ionians who didn't join the revolt had to find a way to retroactively justify their choices. The upshot of this possible interpretation of Herodotus is that Aristagoras may not have been quite so scheming as he appears to be based merely on the father of history's description. It is possible that he may have been undertaking a laudable effort to free the Ionian Greeks from Persian domination, correctly predicting that Persia's next step would be to overtake mainland Greece. Ultimately, of course, we can't know how much Herodotus may or may not have colored the lens through which we view the Ionian Revolt, but I think it's necessary to at least discuss the possibilities here so that we have a balanced mindset as we approach things. Alright, with those points dropped in, let's get back to our last major strand for the episode today. And uh, let me restate that after the major defeat at Cyprus, things continued in a downward trend for the Ionians and their revolt. Regardless of the way that Herodotus chose to depict Aristagoras, it is clear that once he abandoned Miletus and then died in an ill-fated Thracian expedition, that the Ionian revolt as a whole was basically a ship without a captain, without a rudder even. The Ionians had managed to come together and unify early on in the revolt, back when Athens was involved and they were on the offensive. But after the failures at Ephesus and Cyprus, there's no indication that the various Ionian cities managed to work together again, with one major exception that will be our final story for today. And this failure to collaborate more fully may have been part of their downfall, even though they probably would have succumbed to Persian numbers no matter what they had ultimately done. So, as the Ionian Revolt stumbled on its faltering last legs through 495 BCE, Persia continued to push west. It eventually laid siege to Miletus, and after Aristagoras left and was killed, the remaining Ionians realized that the only hope left for them slim as it was, lay at sea 
in the possibility that they could still prevail in a naval confrontation. This would allow them to prevent Persia from blockading the major cities. It would also allow them to keep the grain flowing down from the Black Sea region, since a naval victory for Persia could see them quickly cut off the Hellespont and any grain from the north that had long since become essential for the urbanized Greek centers. What we're going to cover now in the account of Herodotus is a very insightful and unique description of one of the earliest naval battles for which we have clear details. Herodotus says that the remaining Ionian cities chose to abandon Miletus to the strength of its walls and to place all of their remaining eggs into one basket. They, quote, assembled a naval force that would include every one of their ships without exception. They agreed to concentrate this fleet as soon as possible at Lade, a small island laying off the coast of Miletus, and to fight for Miletus from there. While Persia had sent a large army to besiege the city by land, they had also sent a substantial naval force, comprised of the Phoenicians, who were the most ardent for battle, supposedly, and serving with them were the recently subjugated Cyprians, as well as the Cilicians and Egyptians. So, with the board set, let's go ahead now and get into the details of what Herodotus tells us and what we can potentially glean from other sources, as paltry as they are. In all, we're told that the Ionians had gathered ships from a handful of cities, and thereby assembled a navy of 353 triremes. This is a substantial number, and if we compare that to the 325 that were used at Artemisium, or the 380 at Salamis, later battles that we'll get to in good time, we see from the comparison that the Ionians in 494 had an impressive naval strength. One historian actually said that for the period of 550 BCE, up until this fateful battle at Lade, that the Ionian cities as a whole comprised the greatest sea powers, probably the greatest trading fleets, and perhaps the largest populations in the Greek world. For me, that really puts a different tint on how we view the Ionian Revolt. It helps us understand that Ionia was much more advanced and important to the Greek world as a whole than I think general histories tend to allow for, what with the fawning focus on Athens and Sparta. There are reasons for that, of course. But this battle at Lade is integral to the history of the Greeks in Ionia. We can even view it as their last stand against Persia, really. They had assembled 353 triremes then, according to Herodotus. Although I did say just now that this is a large number in comparison to the number of other better-known battles, the number of ships that were fielded by the Greek forces, we are also told that the assembled Persian fleet at Lade numbered 600 ships. Now, it takes a little bit of the blow from that number to see that most of these, or not all of them, were triremes. So we can't say for sure how the trireme strengths of these two fleets matched up. But Herodotus tells us that when the Persians learned of the strength of the Ionian navy, that they were, quote, frightened that they would not be able to prevail over it, and that having thus failed to become masters of the sea, they would not be able to capture Miletus and would be subject to punishment by Darius. For captains and generals, this is a pretty logical fear, I would think, and with this fear motivating them, they adopted an approach that seems to have been a trusty tool in the Persian arsenal they attempted to suborn treachery amidst the Ionian forces. Given the political waves that had swept Ionia, which is to say, given that the Tyrannies had succumbed to democracy when the revolt uh, spread, the Persians decided to gather up the former tyrants that had been ousted from their cities by Aristogoras. 
If the tyrants could convince their former citizens to abandon their brothers, to pull their ships from the fleet and shift their alliances to Persia, then the Persian generals promised to go easy on those cities in the end. Naturally, of course, threats of violence were levied at any cities who remained set on a naval battle with Persia. The masterstroke in this Persian plot, though, was that they sent each former tyrant back to their respective camps with orders to give the two options to their countrymen and to make it seem like Persia had only approached their city with the offer and hadn't mentioned it to any of the others. Initially, every city refused to bow to the Persian pressure, but the seeds had been planted, so to speak, and the Persians just sat back and waited to see what would happen. So after describing the opening salvo of this Persian plan, Herodotus then cuts to a few scenes of the Ionians training in their ships, and in my mind, I always imagine the cut from espionage talk, then abruptly over to training regiments, to be like something out of a sports movie, where they show the scenes of training before the final showdown in the big game or something like that. Herodotus even includes a big pep talk that's the staple ingredient of such movies. So here is what Herodotus tells us was said by the Phocaean general Dionysius. He told the assembled navy of the Ionians, quote, Our welfare, Ionians, now balances on a razor's edge. Whether we shall be free men or slaves, runaway slaves, that is. So if you are willing to endure hardships in the present, you must set to work right now. Only thus will you be able to prevail over your opponents and be free. On the other hand, if you remain feeble and undisciplined, I have every expectation that you will pay the penalty to the king for your revolt. So obey, and entrust yourselves to me, and I promise that as long as the gods grant equal treatment to both sides, our enemies will either not join battle with us at all, or if they do, they will suffer a decisive defeat. Whether Dionysius here knew of the Persian attempts to foment treachery or not, he was insightful to accurately discern that the Persians hoped to avoid a direct battle. His rousing speech on the day here convinced all of the Ionians to treat him as the leader of this naval matter from this point forward. What Herodotus then treats us to is a rather unique scene that's well worth covering in full here. What this scene is, in essence, is a description of how Dionysius led the training for this newly formed Ionian naval force. And as we get an idea of how they trained, etc., we also get an idea of the state of trireme warfare in 494 BCE, and the particular strategies at play in this battle, or at least the intended strategies. Herodotus tells us that the rowers were trained in how to carry out coordinated maneuvers, some of those that we talked about back in our trireme episode. They learned how to row in line-ahead formation, but they also learned how to execute the diocplus maneuver, to break through the enemy's line, turn, and then either ram the enemy ships or grapple them so as to board and fight hand-to-hand. It's unclear how many ships were able to carry out the ramming maneuvers effectively and how many simply planned to break through and then board the enemy ships, but it is clear that ramming had come into more common practice by this point, even if it hadn't been fully adopted by every city-state or ship. In any event, Dionysius led the Ionians in a training regimen every day, bringing his men out to practice maneuvers in full gear, simulating a battle scenario. While many of these individual cities had ships and contributed them as we've outlined, this intensive training may have been new for such a large naval force. It's almost without doubt that a large number of the men who'd been drafted onto the rowing benches of these ships were not experienced rowers, they had to practice intensively just to learn these maneuvers and be able to execute them in a battle scenario. 
We know this, that many of them were inexperienced, because of what Herodotus tells us next. He says, quote, For seven days they followed him and obeyed his orders. But on the eighth day, the Ionians began to grumble to one another, since they were unaccustomed to such hard labor and were worn out by both their exertions and the sun. They're tired from training for a week straight. I think we could all sympathize a little bit with them. But their next move is one that seems a bit strange, since the Persians are about to show up and put them all back into effective slavery if they don't stand their ground. Alright, stand your ground I guess is a bit inaccurate, I suppose, since we're talking about naval warfare. But if you let it slide this time, I guess I'll try to avoid using that phrase in the future, unless it directly applies. Alright, it's a deal. Anyhow, it's possible that what Herodotus tells us next is another literary invention of his that was intended to explain away the ultimate failure of the Ionians as we will see it play out. He tells us that on day number eight of training, when the Ionians started grumbling to one another about the work and the heat, they turned to one another and said, quote, what divine power have we offended that we must suffer in this way? Kind of a universal sentiment, I would venture to say there. Rather than choosing to endure hardship in pursuit of the ultimate victory, as their general Dionysius had explicitly stated in his rousing speech, though, they chose to say that, quote, we would be better off suffering anything rather than these evils. Even to endure future slavery would be better than to continue as we are at present. With such sentiment apparently spread throughout the Ionian ranks, they took their ships to the shore, disembarked, pitched their tents on the island of Lade in the shade, refusing to board the ships or to practice their maneuvers. I do know that the correct pronunciation of the island's name is Lade, but there is a small, maybe immature part of me that wishes it was laid, so that kind of stupid rhyme above would work out to be they pitched their tents on the island of Laid in the shade. But, oh well, I guess it just wasn't meant to be here. Stupid puns aside, when the Ionians all decided to forego the training regimen, the Samian contingent felt like they might have made a mistake by sending 60 ships to join the Ionian cause. The generals from Samos had received that Persian pledge to show mercy if Samos would abandon the Ionian fleet, the same pledge that every other city had gotten in secret. And although Samos did decline initially, the lax discipline among the Ionian ranks started to give them reason to doubt Ionia's chances for victory, so much so that Samos decided to desert to the Persian side. With all of this groundwork laid, now I think we're finally up to the day of the battle. And, well, as you may have seen it coming, the conclusion to our story is a bit anticlimactic. The Ionian navy lines up in a manner that may have been designed to shield their location and line from the Persians until Persia had rounded the island of Lade. This is a strategy that would indicate the Ionian hopes to spring a quick, surprise-like attack and utilize the speed of the Greek ships to break through the Persian line. Herodotus doesn't ultimately tell us specifics about the battle. He says that he's unable to record which Ionians proved themselves to be cowards or brave and valiant men in this encounter, for they all reproach one another now. He does really like getting his digs in at the Ionian cause, doesn't he? Specifics aside, what he does indicate is that the Milesians took the right wing of the Ionian line, they had 80 ships to the east, and they were probably closest to the city of Miletus itself, since they were leading the attack here. Chios had brought 100 ships that were the mainstay of the line's center, while 70 ships from Lesbos were to the left of them, and then the 60 ships from Samos made up the left of the line, farthest to the west. 
As the battle seemed to commence, the Persian navy, made of mainly Phoenician ships, started to advance toward the Ionian line, and as it did so, 49 out of the 60 Samian ships raised their sails and promptly departed from the Ionian line, bound back for Samos. The 49 ships are the only concrete number that we know abandoned the cause, but Herodotus includes that the lesbians also saw the men beside them turning to flee and did the same, and indeed so did the majority of the Ionians. Thus, it seems from Herodotus's account that more than half of the Ionian line abandoned their post when the day of reckoning came, and Persia again reaped the benefit of its ability to sow treachery in the enemy's camp. As Latiner put it in his insightful article that we've looked at, quote, treachery by rebels against the king was always cheaper and rarely hard to produce, and the half-battle at Lade proves the point here yet again. While over half the Ionian line sailed for supposed safety, a steadfast contingent chose to remain and fight despite the odds that had plummeted in the course of only a few moments. Here then is what Herodotus had to say about the course of the battle as it actually panned out, and then we will wrap up today with a few closing points. He writes, quote, of those who stayed to fight at sea, the Chians received the roughest treatment, as they performed brilliant feats and refused to behave like cowards. They had provided 100 ships, as I mentioned earlier, and on each trireme they had stationed 40 men, selected from their citizenry, to fight as marines. When they saw that most of the allies were betraying the alliance, they did not think it right to act like such cowards, so instead, although left alone with just a few allies, they proceeded to fight by performing the breakthrough maneuver until they had taken many of their enemies' ships, but had lost most of their own. Finally, the Chians fled back to their own land in the ships that were left intact. The battle understandably was a lost cause for the Ionians from the moment that Samos and the others fled the scene of battle, but the Chian contingent demonstrated bravery and courage to fulfill their duty in the face of overwhelming odds. By telling us that they successfully carried out the Diuk Plus maneuver, we know that some of the training they'd gone through had stuck but the fact that they also placed 40 marines on each ship does tell us that they may not have been wholly committed to the ramming tactics that later became the entire point of such maneuvers. 40 marines on board a trireme would surely have slowed down the ships, and if you're intending to ram your enemy whenever the opportunity presents itself, then 40 armed marines would have made that a whole lot more difficult. As such, it does appear that this battle at Lade came at a point where a full focus on ramming tactics hadn't quite overtaken all naval strategy, but we do know that it was just on the verge of doing so, and we'll see that in episodes to come. Herodotus tells us that following this debacle of a battle, Miletus was besieged and eventually succumbed to Persian pressure. In his words, quote, in the sixth year after the revolt of Aristagoras, Persia conquered the city completely and enslaved its people. Aside from the bravery of Chios, the man who comes out of this whole situation looking rather brave and industrious is Dionysios, the Phocaean who had attempted to train the weak-willed Ionian navy. When he realized that the battle couldn't be won, he supposedly seized three enemy ships and sailed off. He knew his home city would be quickly sucked into the Persian Empire once again, so he sailed all the way for Phoenicia. Herodotus concludes with a story that may or may not be true again, but it's at least a glimmer of hope and justice shining out of today's story that is tarnished by treachery and deceit. 
Dionysius reached Phoenicia, and Herodotus tells us that, quote, there, after he had sunk some merchant ships and amassed a large sum of money, he sailed to Sicily and established himself as a pirate, though he did not sail against any of the Hellenes there, only against Carthaginians and Tyrrhenians. I find it kind of interesting to see uh, this whole Greco-Persian war and the events happening in Ionia actually did have a connection through this one guy over to the central Mediterranean and an entirely different region that we've also talked about. Just another reminder of how interconnected these regions and networks could be at times. Okay then, this anticlimactic battle at Lade effectively sealed the fate of the Ionian Revolt, and it brings this chapter of our talks to a close. The last thing that I'll share regarding the Ionians' attempt to fend off Persia is a take from the article that we looked at heavily last episode, that article by H.T. Walinga. There, he proposes that the ultimate reason for the failure of the Ionian Revolt is that they never truly organized their navy in a way that could compete with the Persian navy, regardless of whether or not certain factions in the Ionian alliance did ultimately defect at the moment of truth. The Ionians did well to seize the navy and the initiative from Persia early on in the entire revolt, back when the Naxos campaign broke down and they seized those ships. This then led to Athens joining the revolt, and then the burning of Sardis, and everything that happened from there. However, where the Ionian alliance failed was in their maintenance and organization of the large navy that the alliance had managed to cobble together, since control of such a navy required an organized and deliberate system to keep it in permanent preparedness, something that could keep the fleet ready and capable of matching the organized Persian fleet that would quickly respond to the Ionian uprising. The problem as it ultimately played out, and as Willingus states in his article, is that, quote, there's no trace in the tradition, in particular, there's no evidence of any continuous use by the Ionians of their navy, nor even of the institution of a unified naval command. Basically, each city-state chose its own approach right up until the moment of reckoning, when the 600-fleet Persian navy was headed to Miletus, and with only a short window to force-feed a fleet training regimen on the newly cobbled navy, well, we've seen already today how it all played out there. As usual for us, I'm not going to get too involved in a discussion of the political dealings and other topics from this point that continue to lead into the Persian invasion of Greece. The History of Ancient Greece podcast does a great job of covering those events, as do a few other podcasts that I've mentioned. So for today, let's wrap up very briefly and then see where we're headed in the future. To concisely summarize everything here, we can call back to that quote from Herodotus, where he said that the Athenians' choice to send 20 ships to join the Ionian Revolt was the beginning of evils for both Hellenes and barbarians. The evils certainly reached the Ionians first, what with the enslavement of Miletus and destruction of the city. In the months following the fall of Miletus, Darius's armies continued to subjugate the rest of Ionia, but they didn't stop there. They continued to move northwest, and in 493 to 492, the Persian general Mardonius led them in their conquest of the region around the Propontis and the Hellespont, extending west into Thrace. By the time that they had conquered Thrace, only Macedon stood between Persia and northern Greece and Macedon didn't put up really any fight at all. So, within just a few years of the failure of the Ionian Revolt, Persia was knocking on Greece's door directly. Athens, still mulling over the consequences that they might face following their in-and-out involvement with the Ionian Revolt, 
Athens makes one final ominous appearance for us today, in a scene pulled again from Herodotus. He describes the reactions around the Greek world to Persia's conquest of Ionia, and he tells us that, quote, The Athenians expressed their profound grief over the capture of Miletus in many ways, but one in particular deserves mention. When Phrynichos composed his play on the capture of Miletus and produced it on stage, the audience burst into tears, fined him 1,000 drachmas for reminding them of their own evils, and ordered that no one should ever perform this play again. The idea behind this little anecdote is that Athens was starting to feel the pressure, and as Persia's shadow continued to creep further west, I think that this anecdote here about the drama depicting the fall of Miletus can actually be summed up with two words. The people of Athens all felt that it was too soon. Despite the uh, shadow that was hanging over them, there were a few lessons to be learned from the failure of Ionia's revolt too. So as we move on, we'll see if Athens and the mainland Greek city-states can manage to better organize a naval force that could compete with Persia. So then, I am going to leave it here today for good. Next time, we'll briefly discuss the first Persian invasion of Greece and the role that the Persian navy played there. I think we'll also drop in some discussion of the naval aspects of Darius's second shot at invading Greece. But realistically, Darius never managed to do much damage in Greece proper. So I'm thinking that we'll cover what we can call the interlude between the Ionian Revolt and the proper Greco-Persian War, that most people think of when that term is mentioned. The bulk of our coming discussion will then be focused on that fully realized Persian invasion, the one that saw the infamous naval battles at Artemisium and Salamis. Perhaps next time, though, we can begin to set the stage for those battles alongside the naval skirmishes that happened in the central Mediterranean between Carthage and the Greeks at Syracuse, which occurred at the same time as the second Persian invasion of Greece that was led by Xerxes. All that to say, I'm not entirely sure what we're going to cover next episode specifically. I know generally where we're heading, but I'm working on the organization that can make that all uh, a bit more interesting for us in the coming up episodes. So we'll see what the future holds. Thank you for sticking around to the end today, everybody, and thank you for your patience as always. I apologize if my voice has sounded a bit weird this time around. I don't know if it's come out that way, but I can certainly feel it. I managed to pick up a cold somehow, and then allergies on top of that forced me to delay recording this episode a bit. My throat is feeling a bit uncooperative, so I hope that it didn't sound too off-putting. Um... I guess we'll see how the final product turns out. Beyond that, uh, I want to say a big thank you to our most recent reviews of the podcast, those coming from France and the U.S. respectively, from iTunes users Grosnico12 and Daniel Myram. Thank you both for those kind reviews, and uh, if any of you gracious listeners have never left a review on iTunes and have a few minutes to spare, I would greatly appreciate it. Those help the podcast gain a little bit more traction on the ranking charts, and the higher we get, the more people who may choose to give the podcast a listen and join the crew. We are actually, at the present time, only a few reviews shy of 100, at least in the U.S. podcast store, so that would be an awesome milestone for us to get to there. And then beyond reviews, more gratitude goes out from me to our crew members, and we've had a few people join up recently. So thanks to Radial and to Laura for joining the crew over on our Patreon page. We're up to eight crew member episodes now, and I'll have another one leaving the harbor here shortly. So if you've appreciated the podcast and you're able to support the continued production of things here, I'd greatly appreciate your consideration. Patreon does allow you to support us per episode, and you can put a ceiling on your monthly level of support there too. 
So it is a really good way to go if you want to support at a level of your own choosing with total control of how much. I'm investing some time here after this episode goes live to update our timelines and episode transcripts. So check in soon for our crew members there if you're interested in looking at any of that. All right, that's the main housekeeping that I had jotted down to cover here today at the conclusion. I am quite excited to be getting into the most famous naval battles of the ancient world coming up here. And I do hope that you'll all continue to join us for the discussion about these fascinating battles and other maritime matters that played such a key role in the history of the ancient world. Fair winds and following seas to everyone. And until next time, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.